This is your 12th episode of Kimchi Slaps by Your Funny Unni, where I tell you what slaps for the week. And you already know, we're reading the book all about love. I have to apologize. Last week, I didn't get to do a recording because I was deathly sick from having ingested coffee. I mean, okay, <laughs> let me backtrack. Um, I have coffee all the time, obviously. There's a drive through place that I go to, and I normally get my oat milk vanilla latte, right? It's my go-to. But on their little sign, they said, today's special is toffee nut latte. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. So I ordered that, and I literally had nothing else because I do this like intermittent fasting kind of style where I only have coffee with my protein powder in the morning and I don't eat till you know about like one if I can make it that far anyways after I had that coffee I like like three hours later started to feel really funky in the stomach and it started during when I was playing a tennis match, it was with my team for fun, but still, I started to feel it, and wow, I thought I was gonna die. Like, um, it was very volatile, what was happening in my stomach. I was in the bathroom for literally, I don't even know, like, just half of the day, all and I, I can't imagine it being anything else because I did not even have anything other than that coffee. And what I feel like is that they probably wanted to use up this toffee nut syrup that was probably going to expire or already did expire. And I think that's the culprit. It has to be. That's my investigative reporting. <laughs> or my just, you know the only thing I had. It had to be that. Okay. Anyways, it really winded me. Um, I had a day, that was the day I was going to do the recording and I'm telling you, anytime that you're trying to recover something when you have turned 40, it's, it just takes like so much more time to regroup. And this is the truly disadvantage, disadvantageous, disadvantageous part of being fucking 40, I believe. Anyways, I apologize uh, for missing a week. I was really proud of myself for not having missed a single week. And then, of course, as soon as I put that out into the universe, it's what happens. But also, I will try my very best to produce another episode this week um, because I'm going to be going to Portugal tomorrow and like my anxiety y'all I haven't traveled internationally in a hot minute so I just feel like I don't know it's you know what I mean like I, I know that it's normal to have this anxiety but also I'm like oh my god what if everything goes wrong um so anyways my goal is to put out this podcast or episode today and have another one for you guys tomorrow to make up for the fact that I was MIA last week, but also I'm going to be MIA next week. So I hope you'll forgive me. Um, just 
so many little things and my mind is just like scattered everywhere. Scattered? Wait, was I going to say shattered? No, scattered. Scattered. Like I'm so scatterbrained right now getting ready for this trip and my house is a disaster. I'm feeling all kind of frenzied, so pretty stressed out. But let's get back to reading because I know you missed it. I believe you missed it, okay? Um, we're on chapter eight in the book All About Love. It's called Community Loving Communion. Community cannot take root in a divided life. Long before community assumes external shape and form, it must present as a seed in the undivided self. Only as we are in communion with ourselves can we find community with others. Parker Palmer. Okay. I do strongly believe in community. You know, one of the truest white people sayings <laughs> sorry I didn't have to say that but I I was thinking whether it is a white people saying or if it was like a universal saying but it has to be because I only know it in English so um it takes a village to raise a child it truly does I think the village part makes me wonder if it like comes from you know I'm sure the concept is uh around for everyone but it's worded in English, so I'm going to say white people say. Okay, um, let's get reading. To ensure human survival everywhere in the world, females and males organize themselves into communities. Communities sustain life, not nuclear families or the couple, and certainly not the rugged individualist. There is no better place to learn the art of loving than in community. M. Scott Peck began his book, The Different Drum community making and peace with the profound declaration in and through community lies the salvation of the world peck defines community as the coming together of a group of individuals who have learned how to communicate honestly with each other whose relationships go deeper than their masks of composure and who have developed some significant commitment to rejoice together, mourn together, and to delight in each other and make others' conditions our own. We are all born into the world of community. Rarely, if ever, does a child come into the world in isolation with only one or two onlookers. Oh my gosh, I literally said this, you guys. It takes a village and that's where we're going. Okay, children are born into a world surrounded by the possibility of community. Family, doctors, nurses, midwives, and even admiring strangers comprise this field of connections, some more intimate than others. Much of the talk about family values in our society highlights a nuclear family, one that is made up of mother, father, and preferably only one or two children. In the United States, this unit is presented as the primary and prefer preferable, preferable, <laughs> why did I say, okay, preferable organization for the parenting of children, one that will ensure everyone's optimal well-being. Of course, this is the fantasy image of family. Hardly anyone in our society lives in an environment like this. Well, I, I do, <laughs> but I get it. I get it. It's We're becoming a rare breed. Even individuals who are raised in nuclear families usually experience it as a merely small unit within a large unit of extended kin. Capitalism and patriarchy together are structures of domination 
have worked over time to undermine and destroy this larger unit of extended kin. Replacing the family community with more privatized, small autocratic unit helped increase alienation and made abuses of power more possible. It gave absolute rule to father and secondary rule over children to the mother. By encouraging the segregation of nuclear families from extended family, women were forced to become more dependent on on an individual man and children more dependent on an individual woman. It is the dependency that became and is the breeding ground for abuse of power. Wow. Uh, That's certainly true for my upbringing. My um, mom basically forced my dad to cut off all his ties with his extended family back in Korea. And he became solely dependent on her and her connections. I mean, I don't think she sought out, like, thinking this is what I'm going to do, but it, is, it ended up what happening because she could have, couldn't put up with anybody other than, you know, having everything her way. But this is very true. Okay, back to reading. The failure of the patriarchal nuclear family has been utterly documented, exposed as dysfunctional more often than not, as a place of emotional chaos, neglect, abuse. Only those in denial continue to insist that this is the best environment for raising children. While I do not want to suggest that extended families are not as likely to be dysfunctional simply by virtue of their size and their inclusion of non-blood kin, individuals who marry into the family and their blood relations, They are diverse and so are likely to include the presence of some individuals who are both sane and loving. (laughs) Uh, Well, for me, that wasn't the case because even my extended family on my mom's side was all crazy. But I get what she's saying. Had we had more outer network, yeah, there was probably more people that would have seen and possibly spoken up about how dysfunctional my nuclear family was. Um, But we carry on with the reading. When I first began to speak publicly about my dysfunctional family, my mother was enraged. To her, my achievements were a sign that I could not have suffered that much in our nuclear family. I feel that. That's what um, my mom would say to me like you turned out great I mean out of all the cousins I was the first to get married and seemed successful quote unquote you know um and I really resented that because I felt like you know would you own me also if if I had ended up turning to drugs which I to this day I think I've told you guys this so many times I think it is miraculous that I didn't turn to drugs or run away, you know, that I stuck around and that, (laughs) hello, um, anyways, yeah, my mother would be enraged at any talk of me also, um, saying my childhood wasn't great. Continuing on. Yet I know I survived and thrived exactly, despite the pain of childhood, precisely because there were loving individuals among our extended family who nurtured me and gave me a sense of hope and possibility. 
yeah, I didn't have that, but I think for me, what got me through is the belief that even through it all, even though I felt really hopeless, I prayed a lot. My faith in um, God. And now, you know, I'm not dedicated to any religion, but I do believe in higher power and that that belief that I was going to still survive and be okay is I what I held on to. And I didn't have anybody else, really. Until Adonis came into my life and he became my pillar. <sighs> you know, I, I think about often... I feel bad how much I put on him. Because he was a kid when we met. I mean, we were only 18. And I think for him, it was such a shock to witness the abuse I was going through. And then, like, to be my safe haven. It was a lot. It's a lot to ask an 18-year-old, uh, you know? I'm very lucky, though. Very, very lucky. Okay. Uh... Continuing on. They showed that our family's interaction did not constitute a norm, that there was other ways to think and behave different from the accepted patterns in our household. This story is common. Surviving and triumphing over dysfunctional nuclear families may depend on the presence of what psychoanalyst Alice Miller calls enlightened witnesses. Practically every adult who experienced unnecessary suffering in childhood has a story to tell about someone whose kindness, tenderness, and concern restore their sense of hope. That's my man, Adonis, my first love. This could only happen because families existed as part of a larger communities. The privatized patriarchal nuclear family is still a fairly recent form of social organization in the world. Most world citizens do not have and will never have the mat material resources to live in a small unit segregated from larger family communities. In the United States, studies show that economic factors, the high cost of housing, unemployment, are swiftly creating a culture climate in which grown children are leaving the family home later and are frequently returning or never leaving in the first place. Research by anthropologists and sociologists indicates that small privatized units, especially those organized around patriarchal thinking, are unhealthy environments for everyone. Globally, enlightened, healthy parenting is best realized within the context of community and extended family networks. The extended family is a good place to learn the power of community. However, it can only become a community if there is honest communication between the individuals in it. Dysfunctional extended families like smaller nuclear family units are usually characterized by muddied communication. Keeping family secrets often makes it impossible for extended groups to build community. Pooh, yeah. Maybe, well, that was definitely a source in mine because all the extended family also lied to me about the fact that I was the stepdaughter. I mean, they didn't really do that good of a good job as, <laughs> as they did talk a lot of shit, so. However, Continuing on. 
There was once an advertisement that used the slogan, the family that prays together stays together. Since prayer is one way to communicate, it no doubt does help family members stay connected. I remember hearing this slogan as a teenager, usually in situations where authority figures were coercing us to pray and changing it to the family that talks together stays together. Talking together is one way to make community. If we do not experience love in our extended families of origin, which is the first site for community offered us, the other place where children in particular have the opportunity to build community and know love is in friendship. Since we choose our friends, many of us from childhood on into our adulthood have looked to friends for the care, respect, knowledge, and all-around nurturance of our growth that we did not find in family. Writing in her moving memoir, Never Let Me Down, Susan Miller recalls, I kept thinking, love must be here or somewhere. I looked and looked inside myself, but I couldn't find it. I knew what love was. It was a feeling I had for my dolls, for beautiful things, for certain friends. Later on, when I knew Debbie, my best friend, I felt even more sure that love was what made you feel good. Love was not what made you feel bad. Hate yourself. Wow. That's so simple, but so right on. Um, that's what made me realize my parents may have intended to love me. I don't doubt that they tried, but they did not actually truly love me because in my house, I learned so hard how to hate myself that nothing I did was ever going to be good enough. And then years later, I wanted to pound the walls because they'd be like, why aren't you confident? Why aren't you proud of what you've done and all this stuff? And I'm like, how can I be when you've never allowed me to revel in myself on anything? I, I really resented that. Um, anyways. Uh, let's see, where were we? It was what comforted you, freed you up inside, made you laugh. That is love. Sometimes Debbie and I would fight, but that was different because we were basically essentially connected. Loving friendships provide us with the space to experience the joy of community in a relationship where we learn to process all our issues, to cope with differences and conflict while staying connected. Most of us are raised to believe we will either find love in our first family, our family of origin, or if not there, in the second family, we are expected to form through committed romantic couplings, particularly those that lead to marriage and our lifelong bondings. Many of us learn as children that friendship should never be seen as just as important as family ties. However, friendship is the place in which a great majority of us have our first glimpse of redemptive love and caring community. Learning to love and friendship empowers us in ways that enables us to bring this love to other interactions with family or with romantic bonds. A dear friend's mother died when she was just a young adult. Once when I was complaining about my father fussing at my mother fussing at me she shared that she would give anything to hear her mother's voice scolding her encouraging me to be patient with my mother she spoke of the pain of losing her mother and wished they had worked harder to find a place of communication and reconciliation 
Her words reminded me to be compassionate, to focus on what I really enjoy about my mother. In friendship, we are able to hear honest, critical feedback. We trust that a true friend desires our good. My friend wants me to relish the presence of my mother. Often, we take friendships for granted, even when they are the interactions where we experience mutual pleasure. We place them in secondary position, especially in relation to romantic bonds. The devaluation of our friendship creates an emptiness we may not see when we are devoting all our attention to finding someone to love romantically or giving all our attention to a chosen loved one. You know, I, I think this is why it's important when my friends ask me, like, I mean, I've been with one man forever, but he is my best friend. I think, and even when I was younger, I thought romantic relationships had to have so much struggle um, in terms of like only it being romantic. But once we started dating and we formed our relationship over the years, but actually, no, 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 let me backtrack. Let me back up, <laughs> not backtrack, let me, that's, no, that's a different word, isn't it? Backtrack is to go back and not say what you're saying. I meant, let me back up. I've had really little sleep, by the way, just to let you know. Um, we were friends first though, before we were ever romantic. And I think that foundation in our relationship is what has made us successful to this day. And like I said, he is my best friend. And it's not like, oh, he's romantic, like a separate category. He's all things to me, but I think the most important aspect of my husband is that he's my best friend that I can tell him anything, that complete trust, that complete respect for one another. I think that's what makes our romance successful. I think that makes sense, you know? Because we have the foundation. I feel like having that friendship is absolutely critical for a successful marriage. Because the way our society separates romance from friendship, I think that's, that kind of like sets us up for failure. The way we think that romance has to be this, you know, Dynamics between a man and a woman that's flirtatious or it's all about, you know, the dance that we do, supposedly. But what you really should seek in a partner. And it doesn't make it... Um, I think there's also this perception that, you know, the whole idea of friend zone. That if you friend somebody, that they're not... There's, like, heat lacking... And that's just not the case. I think that ideology that we push on ourselves really sets up for failure for a lot of relationships. Anyways, that's my little two cents. 
Going back to reading, committed love relationships are far more likely to become codependent when we cut off all our ties with friends to give those bonds we consider primary our exclusive attention. I have felt especially devastated when close friends who were single fell in love and simultaneously fell away from our friendship. When a best friend chose a mate who did not click with me at all, it caused me heartache. Not only did they begin to do everything together, the friends she stayed closest to were those he liked best. The strength of our friendship was revealed by our willingness to confront openly the shift in our ties and to make necessary change. We do not see each other as much as we once did and we no longer call each other daily, but the positive ties that bind us remain intact. The more genuine our romantic loves, the more we do not feel called upon to weaken or sever ties with friends in order to strengthen ties with romantic partners. Yes, I don't feel that at all. Adonis is, my husband, uh, is always... Like, he is open to all my friendships. We become both mutual friends of whoever my friends are and whoever his friends are. And there's no um, tension in that arena. Because it shouldn't come from, you know, taking resources from your relationship. If if you have a sense of community. Yep, yep. Okay. Trust is the heartbeat of genuine love, and we trust that the attention our partners gives friends or vice versa does not take anything away from us. We are not diminished. Oh my gosh. Look it. Look it. Did you see that? I know my shit. <laughs> I swear I didn't read that beforehand. Okay. What we learn through experience is that our capacity to establish deep and profound connections and friendships strengthens all our intimate bonds. When we see love, when we see love as the will to nurture one's own or another's spiritual growth, revealed through acts of care, respect, knowing, and assuming responsibility, the foundation of all love in our life is the same. There is no special love exclusively reserved for romantic partners. Ding, 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 ding. It's literally what I said. <laughs> she said it better though. Genuine love is the foundation of our engagement with ourselves, with family, with friends, with partners, with everyone we choose to love. While we will necessarily behave differently depending on the nature of relationship or have varying degrees of commitment, the values that inform our behavior when rooted in a love ethic are always the same for any interaction. One of the longest romantic relationships of my life was one in which I behaved in the more traditional manner of placing it above all others in placing it above all other interactions. When it became destructive, I found it difficult to leave. I found myself accepting behavior, verbal and physical abuse that I would not have tolerated in a friendship. I had been raised conventionally to believe that relationship was special and should be revered above all. Most women and men born in the 50s or earlier would socialize to believe that marriages and are committed romantic bonds of any kind should take precedence over all other relationships. Had I been evaluating my relationship from a standpoint that emphasized growth rather than duty and obligation, I would have understood that abuse irre irreparably undermines bonds. All too often, women believe it is a sign of commitment and expression of love to endure unkindness or cruelty. 
to forgive and forget. That's how I felt as a daughter. Not in, well, yeah, not, I didn't have, luckily, I think God took kindness on me and decided Ellen doesn't need shit from a romantic relationship. She's dealt enough in the family dysfunction. Okay, back to reading. In actuality, when we love rightly, we know that the healthy, loving response to cruelty and abuse is putting ourselves out of harm's way. Even though I was a committed feminist as a young woman, all that I knew and believed in politically about equality was, for a time, overshadowed by a religious and familial upbringing that had socialized me to believe everything must be done to save the relationship. In retrospect, I see how ignorant about the art of loving placed the relationship at risk from the start. In the more than 14 years we were together, we were too busy repeating old patterns learned in childhood, acting on misguided information about the nature of love, to appreciate the changes we needed to make in ourselves to be able to love someone else. Importantly, like many other women and men, irrespective of sexual preference, who are in relationships where they are the objects of intimate terrorism, I would have been able to leave this relationship sooner or recover myself within it had I brought this had I brought to this bond the level of respect, care, knowledge and responsibility I brought to friendships. Women who would no more tolerate a friendship in which they were emotionally and physically abused abused stay in romantic relationships where those violations occur regularly. Had they brought to those bonds the same standards they bring to friendships, they would not accept victimization. This is interesting because this is how I feel about how I treat like friends versus how I treat myself. Um, like if a friend makes a mistake in whatever they're doing, I'm always like, oh my gosh, don't worry about it. You know, it's you're human. It's all good. Whereas if I make a mistake, I am so critical of myself to the point that I can't even operate on the rest of the day because I'm busy punishing myself. And I would never do that to a friend. I, I reflect that on, on that a lot. I treat myself horribly. And I always think, this is what my therapist told me. And, and yeah, what I learned there is like, I need to treat myself how I would treat my friends. The kindness that I show to your friends, I need to show that to myself. Anyways, it applies in multiple, you know, dimensions. Okay, back to reading. Naturally, when I left this long-term relationship, which had taken so much time and energy, I was terribly alone and lonely. I learned that it is more fulfilling to live one's life within a circle of love, interacting with loved ones to whom we are committed. A lot of us learn this lesson the hard way by finding ourselves alone and without meaningful connection to friends. And it has been the experience of both living in fear of abandonment in romantic relationships and being abandoned that has shown us that the principles of love are always the same in any meaningful bond. To love well is the task in all meaningful relationships, not just romantic bonds. I know individuals who accept dishonesty in their primary relationships or who are themselves dishonest when they would never accept it in friendships. Satisfying friendships in which we share mutual love provides a guide for behavior in other relationships, including romantic ones. They provide us all with a way to know community. 
Within a loving community, we sustain ties by being compassionate and forgiving. Eric Butterworth's Life is for Loving includes a chapter on love and forgiveness. Insightfully, he writes, We cannot endure without love, and there is no other way to return of healing, comforting, harmonizing love than through total and complete forgiveness. If we want freedom and peace and the experience of love and being loved, we must let go and forgive. Forgiveness is an act of generosity. It requires that we place releasing someone else from the prison of their guilt or anguish over our feelings of outrage or anger. By forgiving, we clear a path on the way to love. It is a gesture of respect. True forgiveness requires that we understand the negative actions of another. While forgiveness is essential to spiritual growth, it does not make everything immediately wonderful or fine. Often, New Age writing on the subject of love makes it seem as though everything will always be wonderful if we are just loving. Realistically, being part of a loving community does not mean we will not face conflicts, betrayals, negative outcomes from positive actions, or bad things happening to good people. Love allows us to confront these negative realities in a matter that is life-affirming and life-enhancing. When a colleague whose work I admired, whom I considered a friend, who for no reason that was ever clear to me, began to write vicious attacks on my work, I was stunned. Her critiques were full of lies and exaggerations. I'd been a caring friend. Her actions hurt. To heal this pain, I entered into an empathic, empathic identification with her so that I could understand what might have motivated her. In Forgiveness, a bold choice for a peaceful heart, Robin Kasarian explains, Forgiveness is a way of life that gradually transforms us from being helpless victims victims of our circumstances to being powerful and loving co-creators of our reality. It is the fading away of the perceptions that cloud our ability to love. Through the practice of compassion and forgiveness, I was able to sustain my appreciation for her work and cope with the grief and disappointment I felt about the loss of this relationship. Practicing compassion enabled me to understand why she might have acted as she did and to forgive her. Forgiving means that I'm able to see her as a member of my community still, one who has a place in my heart, should she wish to claim it. We all long for loving community. It enhances life's joy, but many of us seek community solely to escape the fear of being alone. Knowing how to be solitary is central to the art of loving. When we can be alone, we can be with others without using them as means of escape. Throughout his life, theologian, theologian? Yeah, I don't say that often. Henry Nguyen emphasized the value of solitude. In many of his books and essays, he discouraged us from seeing solitude as being about the need for privacy, sharing his sense that in solitude, we find the place where we can truly look at ourselves and shed the false self. In his book, Reaching Out, he stresses that loneliness is one of the most universal sources of human suffering today. Nguyen contends that no friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community or commune will help or will be able to put the rest, put to rest our deepest cravings for unity and wholeness. Okay, let me read that again because I read that very like messy. No friend or lover, no husband or wife, no community or commune will be able to put to rest our deepest craving for unity and wholeness. Wisely, he suggests, 
We put those feelings to rest by embracing our solitude, by allowing divine spirit to reveal itself there. The difficult road is the road of conversion, the conversion from loneliness into solitude. Instead of running away from our loneliness and trying to forget or deny it, we have to protect it and turn it into a fruitful solitude. Loneliness is painful. Solitude is peaceful. Wow. Wow. I've never thought of it like that. That's that's simple and yet so deep. Loneliness makes us cling to others in desperation. Solitude allows us to respect others in their uniqueness and create community. When children are taught to enjoy quiet time, to be alone with their thoughts and reveries, they carry the skill into adulthood. Individuals young and old striving to overcome fears of being alone often choose meditation practice as a way to embrace solitude. Learning how to sit in stillness and quietude can be the first step toward knowing, comfort, and loneliness and aloneness. Moving from solitude into community heightens our capacity for fellowship with another. Through fellowship, we learn how to serve one another. Service is another dimension of communal love. At the end of her autobiography, The Wheel of Life, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross confesses, I can assure you that the greatest rewards in your whole life will come from opening your heart to those in need. The greatest blessing always comes from helping. Women have been and are the world's greatest teachers about the meaning of service. We publicly honor the memory of exceptional individuals like Mother Teresa, who have made a vocation of services. But there are women everyone knows who I, whose identities the world will never publicly, publicly recognize, who serve with patience, grace, and love. All of us can learn from the exact example of these caring women. Earlier, I was describing my impatience with my mother. Looking at her life, I was awed by her service to others. She taught me and all her children about the value and meaning of service. As a child, I witnessed her patient care of the sick and dying. Without complaint, she gave shelter and aid to them. From her actions, I learned the value of giving freely. Remembering these actions is important. It is so easy for all of us to forget the service women give to others in everyday life, the sacrifices women make. Often, sexist thinking obscures the fact that these women make a choice to serve, that they give from the space of free will and not because of biological destiny. There are plenty of folks who are not interested in serving, who disparage service. When anyone thinks a woman who serves gives because that's what mothers or real women do, they deny her full humanity and thus fail to see the generosity inherent in her acts. There are lots of women who are not interested in service, who even look down on it. The willingness to sacrifice is a necessary dimension of loving practice and living in community. None of us can have things our way all the time. Giving up something is one way we sustain a commitment to the collective well-being. Our willingness to make sacrifices reflects our awareness of interdependency. Writing about the need to bridge the gulf between rich and poor Martin Luther King Jr. preached, all men and women are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. This gulf is bridged by the sharing of resources. 
Every day, individuals who are not rich but who are materially privileged make the choice to share with others. Some of us share through conscious testing, regularly giving a portion of one's income, and others through a daily practice of loving kindness, giving to those in need whom we randomly encounter. Mutual giving strengthens community. Enjoying the benefits of living and loving in a community empowers us to meet strangers without fear and extend to them the gift of openness and recognition. Just by speaking to a stranger, acknowledging their presence on the planet, we make a connection. Every day, we all have an opportunity to practice the lessons learned in community. Being kind and courteous connects us to one another. In Peck's book, The Different Drum, he reminds us that the goal of genuine community is to seek ways in which to live with ourselves and others in love and peace. Unlike other movements for social change that require joining organizations and attending meetings, we can begin the process of making community wherever we are. We can begin by sharing a smile, a warm greeting, a bit of conversation by doing a kind deed or by acknowledging kindness offered us. Daily, we can work to bring our families into greater community with one another. My brother was pleased when I suggested he think about moving to the same city where I live. We could see each other more. It it enhanced his feeling of belonging and it made me feel loved that he wanted to be where I was. Whenever I hear friends talk about estrangement from family members, I encourage them to seek a path of healing, to seek the restoration of bonds. At one point, my sister, who is a lesbian, felt that she wanted to break away from the family because family members were often homophobic. Affirming and sharing her rage and disappointment, I also encouraged her to find ways to stay connected. Over time, she has seen major positive changes. She has seen fear give way to understanding, which would not have happened had she accepted estrangement as the only response to the pain of rejection. Whenever we heal family wounds, we strengthen community. Doing this, we engage in loving practice. That love lays the foundation for the constructive building of community with strangers. The love we make in community stays with us wherever we go. With this knowledge as guide, we make any place we go a place where we return to love. Um, yes. I just want to add, though, if you tried and tried and tried like I have, it's also okay to walk away with peace. I I don't want to say it's so hard this is like one of the hard points for me when people try to encourage and I'm all for it I would also tell other people like try everything you possibly can but if you get to a point point if you really do think you've tried all that you could have it's also okay to walk away I feel like there's not enough people that tell you that I mean it's hard you know because I I, like I said I want to encourage people to try everything before they give up on family because I wanted it I I, I know the importance of it I understand community but it shouldn't come at the price of losing yourself 
that's what I'll say about that. Okay. Um, I am gonna go take a nap. <laughs> I, I don't know why for whatever reason I could not sleep last night. So, um, but I hope to make another episode and drop it tomorrow as well for you guys, um, to have while I'm internationally traveling. Thank you for all your support. You are my community and I am so humbled that you listen to me. (laughs) Um, I make this podcast, I think, for probably maybe 20 people, but it, it means so much. So I appreciate you and I hope you have a wonderful day. And I'm so very much lucky that you are in my life. Thank you. Hi, Ting!